Welcome back to Parts of Green's Bible Study. Pastor Steve here, just loving our study of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, the first two chapters, right, they've been all about John and Jesus, treated almost in parallel fashion. You, you remember first that John's birth is foretold by the angel Gabriel to his father, Zechariah, and then Jesus' birth is foretold by the angel Gabriel to his mother, Mary. Secondly, John's birth is narrated followed by spirit-inspired prophecies all about him. And then Jesus' birth is narrated, followed by spirit-inspired prophecies about him. And now, as we arrive at chapter 3, we're going to learn about John's ministry. And then, starting in chapter 4, we're going to begin to learn about Jesus' ministry. Again, the parallels. So, so our passage, Luke 3, verses 1 to 20, tells the true story of John's ministry. And it might be helpful to organize our thoughts around three headings. It's just three simple words, preparation, confrontation, and exhortation. We'll see preparation in verses 1 to 6, confrontation in verses 7 to 14, and exhortation in verses 15 to 20. So we begin then with John's ministry of preparation in verses 1 to 6. The first thing we notice, right, is that Luke's account of John's ministry is once more grounded solidly in real-time history. It was the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, and since Tiberius became emperor in AD 14, that puts us at AD 28 or 29, maybe depending on calendar technicalities. Also, Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea at the time. That was true from 26 to 36 AD. And Herod Antipas uh, was Tetrarch of Galilee, which was true from 4 BC to 39 AD. And also from 4 BC to 34 AD, Herod's brother Philip was Tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis. And don't worry, Trachonitis was not a communicable skin disease. It was just one of the northern Transjordanian territories. Also, we're told that Lysanias was Tetrarch of Abilene. And I like what the ESV Study Bible says here. Luke's precision in naming five Roman officials with their specific titles shows concern for detailed historical accuracy. And his accuracy is confirmed by historical records outside of the Bible as well. On the Jewish side, it was during the priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, who served from 18 to 36 AD. See, at this historical time, pinpointed with reference to an emperor and a governor and three tetrarchs, as well as a couple of high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. The word of God. Yeah, there were many famous rulers leading at this time in history, but what mattered most was God's word coming to obscure John way out in the wilderness. And in fact, several of these rulers are going to appear again in Luke's gospel, right? Think about Herod and Caiaphas and Annas and Pilate. And, and each of these powerful earthly leaders is going to have to render personal judgments about Jesus. The word of God confronted leader and commoner alike. Right? Beginning with John's proclamation, the word of God was piercing into the world at every level. Uh, the word of God, think about it, hadn't come to a prophet 
for nearly 500 years, since, since way back the time of Malachi. But, but those years of silence are over, and God is speaking to his people. Now, Luke doesn't mention John's clothing or his diet, right? There, it's just all about John's message. It, it, there's no camel's hair or leather belt or locusts and wild honey here in Luke. Just the word of God. Baby John, he's all grown up and he proclaims God's word publicly in all the region around the Jordan. As God's ordained prophet, John proclaimed that people should repent of their sins to be forgiven, and then that would be signified by their cleansing baptism in the Jordan River. In all this, John's ministry was a ministry of preparation. As Isaiah said, John prepared the way of the Lord to make his path straight. It's just like kind of how Romans sometimes made a road or, or smoothed or straightened a road for an approaching king. Well, it's a picture of leveling the earth, you see. Every valley would be filled, every mountain and hill would be made low, so that the landscape of, of personal and social life, it had to be altered in preparation for the coming of the Lord. Now, John would be used by God to, to make the crooked straight, to level the rough places so that all flesh, probably meaning Jews and Gentiles alike would see the salvation of God. Both Jews and Gentiles needed to turn away from their sins and, and be baptized. And John's crying out in the wilderness or the desert, that, that sparsely populated area by the Jordan River, it was all a ministry of preparation through the proclamation of God's coming salvation. And part of John's ministry of preparation was his confrontation of the crowds that came out into the wilderness to be baptized by him. John did not coddle his hearers by any stretch of the imagination. He confronted them, as we see in our second section, verses 7 to 14, on confrontation. You brood of vipers, you poisonous snakes, what do I do address them? Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Do you want to avoid God's coming wrath? Then bear fruits in keeping with repentance, John says. You see, baptism and changed lives of holy living should go hand in hand. Show that you're really turning away from your sin to be forgiven, right? Because people aren't saved by water baptism if it's not accompanied by true repentance. And don't even start to tell yourselves that you can bank on being saved because you're descendants of Abraham. <laughs> you don't come into God's family by having the right human ancestors. Uh-uh. If God wanted to, he could raise up children for Abraham from, from lifeless stones. So there's no value in Abrahamic descent if it's not accompanied by repentance. We might say today, having Christian parents does not by itself make you Christians, right? So rather than presuming on your ancestry, be warned that even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Well, the trees haven't been cut down yet, but it won't be long. God's judgment is coming soon, and every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You don't want to be part of that. So when confronted, the crowds asked John what they should do. Right? Notice how his preaching evokes the repeated question, 
What shall we do three times? And John's answer is to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Be generous, be honest, be content. First, be generous. Whoever has two tunics, that's your inner garment, kind of essential clothing, is to share with him who has none. And anyone with extra food is likewise to share with those who don't have enough. Be generous in sharing food and clothing, the, the, the basic necessities of life with those in need. Also, be honest. Right? Tax or toll collectors were often dishonest in collecting more than they should from people. John doesn't tell them to quit their jobs as tax collectors, but to collect no more than they were authorized to do. Be honest at your job, even if it's not the norm. Be generous, be honest, and be content. Soldiers could be tempted to misuse their power to extort money from people with threats or false accusations. Again, John doesn't tell them to quit their jobs, but to be content with their wages. We always seem to want just a little more or maybe a lot more than what we have. And we can be tempted to use our situations or positions in life to, to give what we want in wrong ways. Instead, John's confrontation is to be content with our pay. John does a real service to his hearers, doesn't he? He, he spells out for them what repentance and faithfulness look like within their particular life situations. You see, every life situation comes with its own specific temptations, which God's people are called to resist. John didn't mince words, did he? Nah. His ministry of preparation included confrontation, and it also included exhortation, as we'll see in our third section of verses 15 to 20 exhortation. The the Jewish people at this time were in a state of high expectation. After centuries of silence, John was speaking God's word to them. So they naturally questioned in their hearts whether John might be the long-awaited Christ, the the promised Messiah. Is is he the one? Maybe. (laughs) Well, John picked up on this and he answered the people directly saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. (laughs) Again, John's ministry was one of preparation for the mightier one who was coming. Now, John knew his place in God's plan. He wasn't even worthy to untie the strap of the Messiah's sandals, the, the most menial task. So don't make a big deal out of me. He says, make a big deal out of the coming one who is way, way mightier than I am. As John said in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. John called for repentance, yes, but even that was a prelude, right? It was preparing the way for the mighty one who was coming. John had a vital ministry of baptizing people with water as a visible sign of their repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That was awesome. But Jesus would have an even greater ministry of baptizing his followers with the Holy Spirit, which of course happens at Pentecost, as Luke records in the book of Acts chapter 2. Jesus will also baptize with fire. 
Now, this may be a reference to the tongues of fire that accompany baptism with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, verse 3, or more likely, it's a reference to the divine judgment of fire for those who reject the Messiah. And that can be supported by later statements of Jesus himself in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, verse 49, chapter 17, verses 29 and 30. See, Jesus and his ministry will bring division, as we've seen before. It's going to bring the blessing of the Spirit to the repentant, but the fire of judgment to the unrepentant. John's comparison is this. You know, after grain was loosened from the husk, it was tossed in the air with the, the wind carrying away the chaff and then the grain falling straight down. So just like a winnowing fork divides the grain from the chaff, the coming Messiah would gather the wheat into his barn and he would burn the chaff with an unquenchable fire. The stakes would be eternal in how people respond to the coming Messiah, which is why John's ministry was also a heartfelt ministry of exhortation. You see that in verse 18 with many other exhortations. He preached good news to the people. Right? I mean, it's good news that the mightier one who's coming after John would bring salvation to his people. Back to verse 6. We are sinners, but if we turn in repentance, we will be forgiven. That's great news. Great news. And then we learn one more thing about John's ministry in verses 19 and 20. John was courageous enough to reprove Herod the Tetrarch, the ruler of Galilee, for two things. Number one, Herod wrongly married his half-brother's wife, which actually required both Herod and this woman to leave previous marriages. And secondly, Herod just did all other sorts of evil, and John calls him out for it. Right? And on top of all that, Herod locked up truth-telling John in prison. You know, sometimes when the light shines, the darkness tries to snuff it out. John's ministry included both positive exhortations, good news to the people, and also negative exhortations, calling out all the evil that Herod did. And then Herod added this to his list of evils. He not only rejected, but he also imprisoned God's own minister. As we close, uh, I was thinking about two possible applications for, for you to consider. I'm sure there are others you'll discuss in your small groups. The first concerns good news. Good news. How can we, how can you, how can I, in our life settings, call people to repentance for the forgiveness of sins? As it says in verse 3, how can we share the good news of Jesus with those we love and care about? as it says in verse 18. The second application concerns good works. What is one way that you can bear fruits in keeping with repentance, as it says in verse 18? Right. How can you practically share food and clothing with others, verse 11? How, how can you be honest in countercultural ways, verse 13? How can you for real, in your heart, be content with your wages, verse 14? It's all about sharing good news and doing good works. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we praise you for your amazing wisdom and love. We are forever thankful for how you brought your word to John so that he might prepare the way of the Lord and that all flesh might see your salvation. As your people, we want to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. We want to be generous in sharing and, and honest in our jobs. We want to be content with our wages. So we ask, we pray that you will continue to show us day by day where we need to repent, where we need to turn away from our sin and turn to you. We praise you for baptizing your people with the Holy Spirit, for giving us the desire and the power to walk in your ways. All this we pray through the Mighty One, the Messiah, our Savior Jesus. Amen.